Hey, and welcome everyone to the Cajun Strong Style Podcast, the game 1037 Lafayette and 104 once exclusive pro wrestling podcast. Hope you've been enjoying a lot of the wrestling over this past week. And we're out of the WrestleMania kind of fever that kind of gets you all hyped up. WrestleMania's in the rearview mirror, but it's time to kind of start shifting the focus over towards what happens next with a lot of big key storylines. That'll be something that's been going down on this podcast over the next several weeks. And we'll start with the man that everybody's been talking about, and that is Cody Rhodes returning to WWE at WrestleMania 38 night one, which was an amazing moment. But you kind of wonder what's going to happen with everybody's favorite son of a son of a plumber. Now that he is in WWE and he's already kind of managed to put this together in a plot in a feasible plot line right out the gate with the announcement on raw last week. And at the time of taping, this raw is actually ongoing, but when it comes to what Cody Rhodes wants to do in the WWE, and that is to win the unified WWE universal championship to do something. His father was never able to do his father, wound up holding a championship for a brief moment in the WWF, or I believe it might have been the WWF at the time. But he wasn't able to be the champion since he wound up winning by countout. But it was interesting to hear Cody Rhodes talk about this and put himself in that position, similar to what he did in AEW when he started. He immediately went for the top dog. Now you... Kind of have to think, is he going to be the guy that's going to beat Roman Reigns? Is he going to be the guy that's able to do throne a champion that is this close about, I'd say, four months out from two years, the first ever multi-reign era, multi-year title reign in the WWE since Hulk Hogan, if I'm not, if I'm not mistaken. He's nearing two long years as the WWE's top dog as a universal champion and now the undisputed champion. Now you wonder how it's all going to pan out for Cody Rhodes. Does he wind up finally winning the big one that he couldn't in AEW? Does it happen this month, next month, or does do they wind up holding this off until SummerSlam? Because there's a lot of other intriguing names to think about when it comes to Roman Reigns' first title defense as the undisputed WWE universal champion. The first name off top has to be, without a doubt, Drew McIntyre. Of course, we saw Shinsuke Nakamura make an appearance at the end of SmackDown last week, trying to get a measure of revenge on the Usos for injuring his tag team partner, Rick Boogs. By the way, Rick, get well soon. But I think we could see Shinsuke be a filler arc, that first title defense for Roman Reigns, and then we can get to see Drew McIntyre get an opportunity, preferably, around the time we get towards Money in the Bank in early July. And that leaves either the pay-per-view in June, which I don't know whether it is off the top of my head, or SummerSlam as your potential Cody Rhodes matches. I'm sure they want to build it up and make sure to say, hey, Seth Rollins, that storyline's not done. Who's to say he doesn't get involved in a storyline with Edge? Or he gets into a month or so long storyline with The Miz, who he fought Earlier tonight, there's a lot of other things that we're kind of trying to piece together and figure out how Cody Rhodes fits into the long-term story. Because again, that's kind of the million-dollar question when it comes to 
what the WWE wants to do with Cody. Do which direction do you want to go? And for me, I think the direction they have to go is focusing in on giving him a solid, consistent push and give him some rivalries in there to keep him busy. And then once you get to SummerSlam, you start running up the angle. Because we don't even know if the Rock Roman is even actually going to happen. It's something that's been bandied about. Apparently, he was in Dallas, reportedly. So if you can't get the Rock Roman match at Mania 39, do you then pull the trigger on going ahead and cutting off this title reign that's been going on for well over a year and a half at this point? Just off at the pass right before the two-year mark and do it at SummerSlam. And if Cody Rhodes loses, is it going to be similar to what he did in AEW where he pretty much handcuffed himself by not competing for the title no matter who was the champion? He made that decision himself. Could he go in that direction? I don't necessarily think so. But it was impressive to see how much they've built up Cody Rhodes in just a matter of weeks to make him be on par with some of the top guys in the WWE. And that's saying something with somebody that was Cody Rhodes who left WWE largely as a mid-carder, occasionally be used as an upper mid-card guy, but could never get past a certain point, especially once they put him in the position of Stardust. I think Stardust hurt him a lot. When it comes to his career, he wound up getting his release in 2016 and fast forward six short years later after creating his own company. He is that guy that's going to have an opportunity to make a big run because he's shown what he can do a lot like what we saw with Drew McIntyre a number of years ago where he went on the indies and tore the place up, got over extremely big in impact wrestling, was able to come back in 2017 and he's been able to parlay that second chance into something really special. Seth Rollins is a guy that could still play a huge role in the story of Roman Reigns. Seth Rollins is going to play a huge role in Cody's second run because they had a banger of a match, and I'm almost certain they would love to run that match back with bigger stakes and, more importantly, a more entertaining and more coherent storyline as we progress into the months and weeks to come because there's always going to be something more that comes out of this stuff. But when it comes to Cody, I think there's no doubt in my mind we see him have a championship opportunity within the next four months. And I'd say ideally, after you have a feud with The Miz and you run it back with Seth Rollins for a couple of pay-per-views, because I think it's a two-pay-per-view storyline, you have Cody Rhodes face off with Roman Reigns at SummerSlam in a big venue. And I think that would be something that would work out extremely well for all parties involved. And if you have Cody lose, you have him take a step back. You take, have him take a back seat after that. And again, it's all depending on what happens with the much hyped and much bandied about match of Roman versus Rock, which I think it's definitely got a distinct possibility of happening. It's all about how the schedules and how the stars quite literally line up when we talk about Dwayne the Rock Johnson. But enough about that. Let's go ahead and flip it over to the conversation about AEW, Dynamite, and a little bit of Rampage, too, while I'm at it. 
because we're going to do something new every single week here on the Cajun Strong Style Podcast, and that is breakdown match of the week. I'll go ahead and get right out the gates with this. This is my match of the week. And it does not go to FTR Briscoe's, not FTR Briscoe's, FTR Young Bucks 2. It does not go to that. It instead is going to go to probably one of my favorite matches in the history of Rampage, the main event. John Moxley versus Wheeler Yuta. It was exactly what you needed to be the blow-off for this feud and now setting up the tag team of Moxley, Regal, Danielson, and now Yuta being the young boy. In a sense, the story was perfect. It was a bloody brawl from start to finish. Like he, like, I don't know if it was an accidental kind of gigged a little too hard, but the Ring of Honor Pure Champion put on a show, nothing short of a banger. The fact that he was kicking out of Paradigm Shifts not once but twice, especially the one where he got dropped flat on his skull. That looked brutal as hell. The entire match was extremely well produced, well put together, and more importantly, it made Wheeler Yuta, a guy who was very much a secondary cat or maybe even a tertiary cat in the best friends hierarchy, where obviously Orange Cassidy's your top banana, the best friends tag team, very much a close second, while Wheeler Yuta and Chris Statlander are that fourth and fifth wheels, where they just don't necessarily feel right to be in that upper echelon of the way it works in AEW. But what Wheeler Yuta's done since breaking away from the best friends and having that pure title match at Supercard of Honor, this was a moment in time that I think is going to make you believe Wheeler Yuta could be one of the top guys in AEW. Not just as a hand, but top guy, period. I think he's going to be somebody to look forward to seeing how he pans out in the not-too-distant future. Give me... A lot of love for one Wheeler Yuta, by far my match of the week. The fact they incorporated multiple storylines all at once with this match worked extremely well. The blood was an appropriate spot. It was a wild amount. And some of the pictures you saw of Wheeler Yuta where you had the blood spurting out of his face was even made me a longtime wrestling fan cringe at how brutal that stuff looked. But now I want to see what Wheeler Yuta does with this opportunity. Because he can have that one big moment, but then it all comes crashing down not too far after. Anyways, Rampage was fantastic this week. I'm sure it's going to be even better with a special start time of 6 p.m. But without further ado, let's go ahead and get into AEW Dynamite. And my God, this show was very interesting in how it was paced out. A lot of really solid matches, some big surprises in terms of how the matches wound up going, namely the Sean Spears, Sean Dean match, but I'll get to that in a little bit. We go ahead and start off with Adam Cole versus Christian Cage, and this crowd was super hot from the second this match, uh, the bell rang. Crowd was hot. The energy was there. It was perfect, and it further speaks to what I think AEW does best And that's say, we're going to go straight into the action. We're going to go ahead and jump straight into the fire with a banger of a match to get you intrigued. More importantly, to hold that rating coming out of the Big Bang Theory. And it's paid off many times doing this. Christian versus Adam Cole brought the heat. Very good match between these two. 
And at certain points, Cole looked like he put some stank, and I mean some real chutzpah, on some of those super kicks. But at the end of the day, Adam Cole wound up getting the win with a thumb to the eye and the boom. Really good stuff here. Like the way this match was paced out. Solid start to a show that wound up exceeding expectations in some cases. So Rad Dragon, they jump at a chance to attack Christian after the match, but the Jurassic Express runs in and saves the day. Hangman comes out after the ring is cleared with his vehicle with horns on it. Just badasses all get out. He comes out and calls out Adam Cole to a rematch for the AEW Championship, but under Texas Deathmatch rules, which was actually in the state of Texas this coming Friday in Dallas, which was interesting to say the least. Because you had just run that angle of a Texas death match about two or three months ago. If I'm not mistaken, it was before Revolution. Like It's not long ago you ran a Texas death match with Adam Page. And you're going to go ahead and run it back with Adam Cole. I'm intrigued. And I can't wait to see that next Friday deep in the heart of Texas. In Garland, I should say. So let's go ahead and get into... Another match that was on the card, and this was really surprising. Samoa Joe versus Max Caster. And Caster is usually on point with his freestyles. It felt like the moment was a little bit too big for him. At least that was how it looked to me. Because you had, you know, Max Caster just wrap a fairly decent freestyle, but it just didn't have the same kind of venom other ones have had in the past. But, of course, it's all about Samoa Joe. And he pretty much had a glorified squash match in the qualifier for the Owen Hart Cup. Short, sweet to the point. Joey Headrocker won with the muscle buster. And it looked like at certain points he had not missed a beat. Looks even more gigantic. And I can't wait to see what he does with other AEW stars. Next thing you know, Lethal is on the big Tron. I don't know how they call that. The Con Tron. I'm just calling the Tron. And he cuts a promo establishing the new heel gimmick for those that didn't see Ring of Honor Supercard. And Lethal actually winds up saying he's going to give special a special gift to Samoa Joe out in New Orleans next Wednesday. So what could that be? Probably an ass whooping or something like that. So let's go ahead and look at the next match with Sean Spears versus Captain Sean Dean. And every time I'm starting to see... Mr. Spears lately, he has looked more and more like a great value, sure, fine, whatever you want to call it, Randy Orton. And this was a squash match that there ever was one, the way it was built for the first few minutes. Spears made it look easy and was squashing Captain Sean Dean like a bug. But then you start to see the path of destruction, pretty much murdered probably several security members and that is, of course, Wardlow. Second straight week, he's just jobbing out all these guys, immediately just running over each and every person. But the second he gets anywhere close to the ring, the security is right there to shut him down. But apparently that was enough of a distraction for one. For one, Sean Dean, who wound up rolling up Spears for the victory. Big surprise there. Loved the story. Of how, once again, Sean Dean gets one over on the pinnacle. Hopefully we see more of that in the next few weeks. 
We get to a pre-tape, or at least it looked like it. Eddie Kingston are proud of powerful. They're beating up the Jericho Appreciation Society. Kingston's rocking the Kenny Powers jersey. Absolutely love Eastbound and Downs. So I love this. And they just start beating down everybody. He starts beating down Jericho, Jericho's Appreciation Society, all that stuff. Eddie comes out, starts cutting another great promo, saying it's on site with the Jericho Appreciation Society, and they challenge him to a six-man tag match in New Orleans and says they're going to beat him up JYD Butch Reed style. Once they said that, I popped for that because that's going to be so much fun to see next week on Dynamite. Chris Jericho and the Appreciation Society taking on Eddie Kingston and Proud and Powerful, the old LAX, not the OG LAX, but the ones in the like mid to late 2010s impact. Next up is a tables match. Butcher and the Blade versus the Hardys. Definitely a lot of shades of Royal Rumble 2000. The match against Edge and Christian being a tables match as well, where both guys had to be put through a table. It looked like it was a short match to kind of start with Jeff Hardy getting put through a table, kind of, sort of, due to an offensive move. He gets quote-unquote eliminated. They wound up going to picture-in-picture. Butcher took a huge bump through a table after the break, so now it's all down to the Blade and Matt Hardy. And the way it played out was really cool. Hardy's fight back. Jeff gets his team the win with the Swanton Bomb through a couple tables off a ladder. Really good stuff here. AFO comes out after the match, and Andrade strolls his way over to the ring. Sting takes down Private Party, and Andrade puts the bunny between him and Sting to end the segment. And the Jurassic Express winds up challenging Red Dragon in a match for the titles next week in New Orleans. That show is going to absolutely slap. But I'm more surprised they are booking out a world title match and a tag team title match on Dynamite and Rampage, respectively, rather than trying to make the Clash of Champions type event that they're going to do seemingly every quarter mean something. It feels weird to think that we have title matches on Dynamite and Rampage, but we're going to get mainly the secondary titles having the opportunity to be part of this pay-per-view or this special event that the TBS crew, TNT's crew is going to put together. It's a little weird, but again, whatever. Next up is Julia Hart versus Hikaru Shida. And I loved how they put together Julia Hart. She immediately is starting to become more and more heel as the weeks progress. And this was a prime example of just that. She played the heel here perfectly. And sometimes you need that with somebody like Hikaru Shida, who is so over with the fans. She becomes a heel immediately, attacks Shida from behind, chokes her out with the varsity jacket. She kicks out and the varsity blondes before the match. And that gives Shida a chance to fight back, take over the contest. From there, it was all Shida in the Owen Cup Invitational, the qualifier. Serena Deep comes out after Sheeta won with the Falcon Arrow and is about to attack her from behind, but Sheeta uses her spider sense, sees it coming, and after some teasing, Deep walks away. Fine stuff here. I'd love to see that possibly be the final of the tournament, which will be starting in May. And now we get to the main event. It's FTR versus the Young Bucks for both the Ring of Honor and AAA Tag Team titles. First off, love hearing Bobby Cruz do the ring announcing for the match on TBS. And I loved this because there was a lot of really cool moments here and there. Early on, FTR had great ring awareness, making sure the Bucks don't get a double team move 
in on them early on. Eventually, they started to get some of those double-team moves. But everything in this match was so damn fluid. But I'll say this. This was not the Bucks FTR match in November 2020. That match was outstanding. This felt like it fell short of the mark for a lot of different reasons. FTR wound up retaining the titles with a BT trigger and a big rig. Great stuff. But it felt like it was a couple, it was like a step below what we saw at the big pay per view when the Young Bucks finally won the big one and beat FTR. Maybe reading too much into it. But it felt like, you know, the final five minutes or so were the most entertaining parts of the show, of the match, because everything else kind of plotted for a good, let's say, 15 minutes of the match. It felt like there were moments that he could have just gone to picture in picture and nobody would have paid attention, not missed anything. That's what this match felt like for me. And just overall, it didn't hit as well as I thought it was going to be. Still a good show. A lot of people gave it thumbs up in our Twitter poll about AEW Dynamite that we usually put these instant reactions just to see what you think about the programming. What do you think about the shows that we talk about here on the Cajun Strong Style Podcast? If you want to voice your opinion, you can check us out on Twitter and Facebook and Instagram. For Twitter, just search at Cajun Strong Pod. You can follow us that way. Just search Cajun Strong Style on Twitter and Instagram. No, Facebook and Instagram, excuse me. So make sure you check us out over there while you're at it. Why not leave us a five-star review if you are on iTunes right now? Because trust me, we get a good bit of them, but I think we could get a lot more. I believe I have five five-star reviews right now. Why not make it yours number six? And just leave us a five-star review. As always, would be much appreciated. Hell, you can also leave us a review on Spotify. Plenty of ways to check us out through Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Stitcher, Spotify, and everywhere in between. All right, let's go ahead and flip it over. I'm going to start coming up with more and more lists because this is something that I did just just for fun. And I want to start with the best Stone Cold Stunners ever taken, the best sell jobs, the best entertainment value for me. These are my top five best stunner sells of all time. Maybe I'll do a worst of not too far down the road. So we have to start with number five, and then we'll make our way to one. Number five, it's more recent, but trust me, you watch it, it is so damn good. Austin Theory at WrestleMania 38 was an all-timer. The way that dude was floating, damn near doing a doggy paddle in midair. This was the exact thing you would have expected it to be. Number four, I'll go Santino Morella on Raw, because when he got hit with that stunner, he wound up, you know, doing a salute like in midair. That's how well he sold that entire spot. It should be a lot higher, but I think there's at least two more that are towards the tippy top. And number three, again, more of a recency bias here with one of them. It's a tie. I've got to go Shane O'Mac. I believe this is Unforgiven 2000. Whenever he got hit with a stunner by, Shane, by Stone Cold Steve Austin and Shane, while drinking a beer, Tips over, spits out the beer. Such a great spot, a great sell from him as well. And Pat McAfee also winds up on the number three spot. I'm making it a tie because these two were way too damn good. 
And Pat McAfee, the way he took that, it absolutely went. He went over timber style and just the way he did it was absolute perfection. Now, number two, I think we all got to agree. It's Scott Hall, WrestleMania 18, because he took it not once, but he took it two times. And that second time, that cat was up there for a solid two seconds. An amazing spot, an amazing bump from a talent that sadly has recently passed away. Number one, we've got to say it. It's The Rock, number one. And we're going to just go ahead and put at any time because they always would try to outdo themselves hitting that stunner and hitting that sell. In fact, they had a case of beer betting on how well and how good that sell would be, which I love the fact that they actually did that because it made that spot look so much better and the presentation was so much better. And we'll go ahead and wrap up this week's podcast in a nice little bow with UFC 273. This was an outstanding card on paper. Maybe didn't live up to the expectations that I had for this card. Mainly because it was a little bit too lengthy. The main event didn't really start until about, I'd say, like 12, a little after midnight. Damn near didn't get done with the show till almost 1 a.m. And as a guy that doesn't necessarily stay up that late anymore, it was a little tough. But honestly, some fun stuff going on with this card. Vink Pichel, Marco Madsen. Pichel has an amazing walk-up entrance, ACDC's Highway to Hell, and an S-tier mustache. Early filling out process between these two. Madsen wound up working the leg for a good bit of the first round. They got more aggressive. And I think Madsen, he scored the first takedown, but Pichel was able to get off the mat very quickly. It was a close first round. I wound up going 10-9 Madsen. Madsen got another solid takedown in the second round, and Pichel got one of getting one to in the second round, but I still think... Madsen took round two on my scorecard, which the judges kind of agreed. This one was all Madsen 30-27, unanimous decision. The only one that was slightly different was 29-28, which was weird to say the least. Good first fight on the main card to see. Now we get to a more controversial ending here because I thought Tisha Torres got robbed here, losing to Mackenzie Dern 29-28. Torres, in my mind, had the edge in the first round, landed a lot more punches. But I'll give credit to Dern. She absolutely dominated the second round. Damn near had Torres out for the count on a Kimura lock. After taking her down, spent a couple minutes on that. Torres actually got out of it. She looked, Dern looked great in the second round by locking in the Kimura and nearly getting the win. But it was still a little too close for comfort. 1919. And I thought Torres would have taken over the third round, and I felt in my mind she was winning 29-28. The judges were split. Dern won. I thought that she was robbed. But apparently, maybe the first round was a little bit in more question than what I thought. And again, what do I know? I'm just a guy that talks about MMA and watches it on a regular basis and can kind of tell when a fight goes a certain way and seeing how a round scores out. Now we get to Gilbert Gerds, Gil, uh, Gilbert Burns. There we go. Comes at Chimaev, and this was a banger of a match. Really good fight of the year. Hell, I believe the second round was one of the best I've seen. Strong finish by Burns, hitting a big strike to knock out, knock him down at the end of the first round. No, excuse me, second round. He wound up getting that edge. 
but it was all about Jimeyev, and he brought the heat. 29-28, fight of the year nominee in my mind. These two went at it from the word go. Very well done. And then we get to another match, Aljamain Sterling versus Petrian, and this was a weird match to where Sterling just basically went Randy Orton rest hold style with this fight. He basically jumped on him like a spider monkey in the second round, did the same thing in the third round, and that wound up giving more of an opportunity to secure the bag in one way or another in those championship rounds because he lost the first round very easily. And this dude was like a human boa constrictor at certain points. He wound up winning the next two rounds, 10-9 in my card, and he kept just rolling. And this was a yawn. Got the got the win, which was really surprising, just based off of those two rounds that you know Sterling put together. But it wasn't meant to be. No, excuse me. Sterling won by split decision. I had Jan 48-47, just because he had a stronger finish, and I had the fact that Sterling was trying way too many takedown attempts and not getting much of. It. He only got two out of fifteen. So I thought Jan would have had the better edge here, but lo and behold, Sterling won by split decision. All the Judges had 48-47, which is similar to what my scorecard had, but I think I was more in the party of Jan. Definitely surprised to see that Sterling challenges Dillashaw next. That said, I want to see this trilogy between these two come up sooner rather than later. And now we get to the main event of an overall fairly good pay-per-view, but this needed to be a huge one. And Volkanovski versus the Korean Zombie was probably one of the most underwhelming main events I've seen so because Volkanovski put together the perfect game plan. The Korean Zombie was outclassed the entire time because Volkanovski was just on 100, landing every single big strike he could. I damn near think he could have had some 10-8 rounds if the UFC judges had any huevos to actually do that. This was a one-sided affair. At one point, Zombie really started to fight, throw some wild strikes at the end of the third round, but Volk landed the one strike he needed, and looked like he was about to win, but a lot like Zach Morris, the Zombie was saved by the bell. Don't call him Zach Morris, though. Volkanovski won in the fourth round. The ref, I give credit to Herb Dean. He actually stopped the fight. Doesn't happen all that often, but the fact that he was damn near just getting his ass handed to him from the word go it meant there had to be an opportunity for him to be called out. And this was just a phenomenal fight from Volkanovski. He did everything perfectly. He would have won this fight probably, in my mind, 40 to like 35. Like he would have, no, 36. No, wait, nope. I don't know how to count. But it'd be more like a 10 8 round every single fight. So it'd be, you know, we go 50-40. That's how lopsided that could have been. Overall, good pay-per-view. I'm just more excited about 274 on the horizon with Olivera Gaethje, Thug Rose, Esparza. should be a lot of fun. Chandler Ferguson. Just those three fights alone had me more intrigued with this one on my birthday weekend than anything else. Hopefully you've enjoyed the podcast. We'll be back with you next week with even more pro wrestling talk. And until then, we'll see you later. 